Welcome to the healing space. I am Sensei Raven Ekundayo. Sharita Cole Brown earned a BA in English from Wesleyan University and an MAT in Early Childhood Education from Towson University in Maryland. She is now retired and lives in Baltimore with her two daughters. Against doctors' predictions, Sharita Cole Brown has been able to manage her bipolar disorder for more than 25 years. In June of this year, 2018, this brilliant sister released her memoir, Defying the Verdict, My Bipolar Life. On this, our final episode in our week-long series on bipolar disorder, you'll hear about her journey. And please make sure you read the description of this episode so that you can walk with her all over social media. You'll want to know more about this sister. So now, listen closely and learn. Let's get healed. Hello, fellow misfits. I am Sharita Cole Brown, the author of Define the Verdict, My Bipolar Life, published by Curbside Splendor Publishing in June of 2018. My story is about me, an academically gifted college student, who inherits her grandmother's bipolar one disorder, an illness which has the capacity to derail her life. I'm going to start by um, reading a blurb from someone who praised me and the writing of the book. Her name is Cassandra Joubert, and she's the author of Losing Control, Loving a Black Child with Bipolar Disorder. In an artful and gripping account of life inside an over-imaginative brain, Sharita's fierce determination to ride the waves of her illness with unshakable resolve inspires fortitude in the most challenging of personal circumstances. Grounded by her family's love and her own undeniable intellect, this victorious story activates hope for those with and without a brain-based illness. What I'd like to do is start what I'm saying, what I'm sharing with the chapter in my book, which is chapter two, which talks about my grandmother's illness. I inherited the gene for bipolar disorder from my maternal grandmother's family. Chapter two. Are we all captive to the scars of our family history, no matter what we do? John Blake, CNN. When I was seven years old, my maternal grandmother, Ruth Stanley Ross, came to live with my family, the Coles, in Baltimore, Maryland. She joined my parents, my five siblings, Valerie, Karen, Kelvin, Ernestine, who we called Teeny. Linda, and me, plus our dog, Rover, in our two-story row house. I can still see Granny Ruth, a caramel-colored black lady in her 50s who stood five feet three inches tall. She always wore a house coat, socks, and slides or slippers in the house. When going out, 
She wore stockings tied just above the knee with matronly slip-on shoes. She never wore makeup. Her eyes sparkled. She had a ready smile and an irreverent sense of humor. Speaking things in my hearing that my devout, sober-minded Catholic mother would have prohibited, deeming such utterances inappropriate for young ears. My favorite was, if you're sad, stick two fingers up your tail and get glad. Of course, I didn't know the connotation of this phrase, but I do of anyone doing that seemed outlandishly funny to me. I welcome the occasional bawdiness. Granny's zest for life amused and delighted me. Gwen quickly became a welcomed member of our working class Baltimore neighborhood. It was the late 1960s, a time when neighbors were literally sharing flour, sugar, eggs, and ketchup. My mom shared these things and loaned encyclopedias as well. As the neighborhood's elementary school teacher and residence, she promoted education and willingly lent from her stockpile of books, which included the Harvard classics. Our corner house had one of the largest yards, plus a non-working barbecue pit in its corner. Plenty of space to play and make mud pies. Since my outgoing grandmother spent much of her time with our family, she quickly became a part of the neighborhood. The children in the neighborhood grew to know and love her. Many of them called her Granny, right along with the Cole clan, as Mama referred to us. Granny's residency at our house on Finney Avenue ended abruptly on a spring day in 1969. After I arrived home from school, before I could change out of my uniform, I noticed my grandmother had propped our front door open with a porch chair. This was unusual. Granny always lectured. Keep that door closed so bugs won't fly in this house. What happened next was even stranger. Wild-eyed, my grandmother began hefting our living room furniture onto the porch. Out went a lamp. Out went an end table. Out went a chair. She performed her task frantically with unusual strength, like an erratic Hercules. My three-year-old sister, Linda, who was usually right up under my grandmother, was staring at Granny from the couch that remained in the living room, tears forming in her eyes. Though she spoke to herself under her breath, I think I heard my mother say, I have to do this. Trembling a little, she picked up the phone's receiver and dialed. I scrambled over to the sofa to grab my baby sister. She was crying silently. Mom pleaded into the phone for help before placing it back on the hook. Standing transfixed on the far side of the living room, she could see the street outside our front window while keeping an eye on my sister and me. She avoided Granny until the police arrived in what seemed like less than a minute. My mother walked out to the porch and stood behind Granny as two officers walked up our front steps. They spoke calmly to my grandmother. Ma'am, exactly what's happening here? What's going on? 
from inside the house, I heard Granny scream, go away and leave me alone. I ran to the window and saw one of the officers take my grandmother by the arm. She yelled, get away from me, then turned and punched him in the chest. In response to this unexpected resistance, the policeman handcuffed my usually docile grandmother, cited her with disturbing the peace, and placed her in the police car. Not long after they arrived, they drove away. By this time, my older sisters were standing inside the front door with our mother. She was shaken, not tearful. Grabbing my little sister by the hand, we walked upstairs to my parents' room. She began to cry audibly. I sat on the bed and held her on my lap. Five-year-old teeny lay next to us in wide-eyed silence. At the time, I couldn't understand why Mama didn't ask the officers to calm that Granny down without taking her away. Years later, Mama explained that she had been called, forced to call for police assistance on an earlier occasion when we lived in an apartment on Lakewood Avenue in 1961. Having grown up with an actively bipolar mother, she was acutely aware of the times when her mother's behavior escalated beyond her control. After this incident, I did not trust police officers, despite Officer Friendly's yearly visits to my elementary school classroom. That night, after the pieces of furniture had been returned to their respective places and every child had been sent to bed, I listened through my parents' closed bedroom door as my father comforted my mother in hushed tones. No one attempted to quell the fear I felt in response to Granny being forcibly removed from our home. For me, it seemed like out of sight, out of mind. Worse yet, I had no idea where the police had taken her. About two weeks later, I got my answer. It was a lovely Sunday afternoon my father announced that our family would be visiting our grandmother. We drove for about an hour. When we got to the grounds, there was a sign that read, Springfield State Hospital. Hey, Granny got sick, I wondered. I looked around the grounds. At least she's in a beautiful place, I thought. After entering the building, I was jarred by the buzzer that sounded as we entered the door of the lock. Ward. We were entering a Maryland State Psychiatric Hospital, a holding center for the mentally insane. Looking back, I was so overwhelmed by the experience that I don't remember whether my four younger siblings, including my new baby brother, were with us. I do remember my parents and my two older sisters being there. My parents acted like this was an ordinary Sunday visit. Because this was an asylum for blacks without financial means, the walls were cheerless, the room had a slight pungency. Not clean like I expected a hospital to be. Some of the patients moved stiffly like zombies, while others moved erratically like wind-up toys at the end of a rotation. I didn't know I was witnessing the effects of heavy sedation, 
medication, or even electroshock therapy in the zombies. These were the primary psychiatric remedies of that time. I guess the wind-up group needed their medication adjusted. As the attendant led an older female zombie to the area where my family was seated, I asked myself, who is this lifeless old lady? And why are they bringing her over to join my family? Then I realized this was my beloved granny. Where was the sparkle in her eyes? My parents talked. My sister smiled and sat nicely. Normally the most loquacious of the Cole sisters, I had nothing to say. After hugging granny, I sat silently longing to go home. The hour-long visit seemed unending. We left the ward accompanying by, accompanied by the sound of that buzzer and the clanging of the door closing behind us. We had to leave my grandmother at Springfield. We got back in the car and my father drove home. Though my mother had been pretty quiet on our way to the hospital, she conversed with my sisters a little on the way home. As for me, I sat silently between my sisters, my thoughts in overdrive. My nine-year-old mind began to process my Springfield visit. I concluded that people who walk around like zombies or behave erratically were definitely crazy. This conclusion unnerved me even more than Granny's departure and handcuffs had. The Springfield visit spawned a taproot of fear within me. The root spread as time passed. As an adult, I still wish my parents had spared me that seemingly benign visit to the psychiatric facility. But how could they have known they should have left me at home? In their minds, we had simply visited a hospital. In mine, overly sensitive Sharita Cole Brown, then Sharita Cole, had just stared at her worst fear. This was the last time I would see my grandmother. After her release from Springfield, Granny chose to live in Baltimore City with a woman who had been her caregiver rather than return to Finney Avenue. One afternoon, while at home alone, she attempted to light the gas oven with a match. Apparently, after turning the gas on, she waited too long to touch the match to the stove. Fire exploded from the oven, igniting her housecoat. In shock, she ran from the kitchen through the living room and outside onto the sidewalk. A passing driver saw her. He pulled his car over quickly and smothered the flames with a blanket he had in his car. My grandmother was hospitalized with second and third degree burns over at least 75% of her body. She passed away the following day. Because her face wasn't burned, her body rested in a half-open blue casket. She wore a flowy blue shroud and held rosary beads between her gloved fingers. Our family and many of our neighbors profoundly mourned the death of Ruth Hester Stanley Ross. 
she was 60 years old. As I grew older, I sometimes experienced disturbing and disjointed thoughts that increased in frequency with the passage of time. In eighth grade, fearing the worst, I decided to share my suspicion about myself with my oldest sister. Though she was only four years older, I trusted her wisdom. Now, I whispered, I think I might be crazy. She answered, matter-of-factly, Sharita, everybody's crazy. The wonderful thing about my sister was that the words she spoke to me carried me all the way through college. As I read, um, you heard about the taproot of fear. Somehow, when I saw what happened to my grandmother, I connected with that and suspected as a child that that lived in me. At one point in the book, I use a quote from Sylvia Plath, and she says, I am terrified by this dark thing that sleeps in me. All day, I feel its soft, feathery turnings, its malignity. For me, the depression part of bipolar disorder was not as scary as the mania. And that was because, as a child, my mother, who was a teacher, I said, had experienced a bout of depression. When she experienced that bout of depression, she went to the Hopkins Clinic. The doctor gave her time off, the psychiatric clinic. The doctor gave her time off. She took medication. She returned to work. So unlike some people, depression did not scare me because in my young mind, it was something that you could overcome. So my first serious depression was in the fall of my senior year of high school. I was 16 years old. I was in a very competitive prep school. I had the lead in the, the drama for my senior year. I was visiting colleges. I was... Um, doing, you know, writing essays for college. I was very, very, very busy. I was working, and I suffered my first severe depression. Having bipolar 1 disorder, which I hadn't said before, having bipolar 1 disorder, many women or females who's, who have bipolar 1 disorder have a significant depression before they have mania. So I had that depression, but as I said, it didn't scare me. So I went on to college, and my first semester, I suffered another significant depression, which I saw as an anomaly, and I decided that I was going to come back home. But as these things happened to me, I was still afraid. Then, what really scared me was my first 
mania. I had joined a church, an apostolic Pentecostal church, where during the month of February we fasted for, throughout the month. And what I didn't know was given my brain chemistry, that was a no-no. That was too much. Not that I could, couldn't fast for a day, but eating one meal a day for 28 days threw me off completely. The first time I did it, I had hypomania, which means I didn't have to be hospitalized. Two of my friends managed me. The next time I did it, I ended up having a psychotic break, which ended me up in the hospital. Um, for me, I just had to come to terms with the fact that I actually had bipolar disorder. I had a pastor who was a gem who said to me, he said, Sharita, if you had a toothache, you would go to a dentist. This is no different. Now, I didn't quite agree with him or accept it, but it was wonderful that somebody that cared about me shared that with me, that it was an illness. And he planted that seed of it being an illness within me. I have come to find out, as Gloria Hockman wrote in A Brilliant Madness, if you have a powerful gene, you get the illness no matter what. It will come bursting through. What I had to deal with um, was the up-down, up-down of the illness. I was hospitalized in 1980 to 1981 for 15 days. Then I was hospitalized in 1982. Then I took myself off my medication, ended up in the hospital in 1983. I had three years where I did everything I was supposed to do and did very well and thought that I was cured. When I got sick doing everything I was supposed to do, and I ended up back in the hospital. They were like, oh, wow, you should be really proud of yourself. I'm like, why? When I got out of the hospital, I went to a pastoral counselor I had seen earlier for a year. For two plus years, we turned over every psychic rock until I was well. As I said, because he was a pastoral counselor, we used scripture and prayer and therapeutic technique to help me get better. So one of the scriptures I used was, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because God is love and I was walking in God. The, the other scripture I used and used to say it seven times in the morning and seven times at night was, for God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And I had to learn to be authentic and unafraid. My book's title, Defying the Verdict, comes from the Norman Cousins quote, don't defy the diagnosis, try to defy the verdict. And Elder Hickey, my therapist, used to say, take try out of it, just do it. And I was able to do it. And once I revealed to myself 
and in this book I'm revealing to others what was going on with me. Once I really revealed it, I came up with my own catchphrase that you have to, my own hashtag, that you have to reveal to heal. Gary Moreland, in closing, said, there is a treasure that has been placed here to encourage a hurting world. That treasure has been designed, gifted, and engineered to spread hope. Everyone who commit, considers themselves a misfit or not a misfit, you are that treasure. Whatever has been spoken over us negatively, that has negatively impacted us, we can defy that verdict and live a spectacular life. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. On behalf of BHW, we'd like to thank everyone in the Misfit universe for going on this journey with us as we've healed through bipolar disorder. If you'd like to seek help or more information for yourself or someone you care for, you can contact NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, at their hotline, 800-954-6264. If in crisis, text NAMI to 741741. I'd also like to provide everyone with the Suicide Lifeline, which is 800-273-8255. Also, I'd like to thank our wonderful misfits who were brave and bold enough to come forward to tell and share their stories with everyone. Toshiba Martin, Jarrell Elgood, Shamika Smalling, and Sharita Cole-Brown. Thank you all so much, as we know that your stories over this past week have helped and healed. Now, this coming week is going to be all about BHW, as he's going to be all over the place. First of all, for the very first time, he's going to go solo for the healing space tomorrow. And he'll also be a guest on the Outline podcast this coming Wednesday with Kevin Dwayne. So make sure to check him out on both and to show him tons of love all week long. Again, thank you all so much for the love you showed for us this week. This is the very first time in the history of THS that we've had episodes back to back to back all week long. And your feedback has been wonderful. Thank you for embracing the healing of this black and queer mental health podcast. We love you all. And until next time, namaste. Namaste.